Good morning, saints. Glad that you're all here today. It's St. Patrick's Day, yeah? That's my Scottish accent. I have a hard time doing an Irish accent. I want to pray St. Patrick's Prayer with us today. Can we do that? Can we do that? You know, it's called the Lorica or it's the Breastplate Prayer. And uh, before we go any further, let's, let's just do that. Let's take a moment. Let's just stop. Let's just relax. Let's block out those distractions. And if you want, because the words are actually just beautiful and actually go with a lot of the songs that we even sung this morning. If you want to even just put your hands in a posture of, of receiving, palms up. Uh, again, we've done prayer, prayer postures numerous times, but one posture is the palms up. And when we pray like that, it's like receiving from God. So if you're in the receiving mood this morning, just palms up and pray with me. Today I put on a terrible strength, invoking the Trinity, confessing the three with faith in the one as I face my maker. Today I put on the power of Christ's birth and baptism of his hanging and burial, his resurrection, ascension, and descent at the judgment. Today I put on the power of the order of the cherubim, the angels, obedience, archangels, attendance in hope of ascending to my reward, patriarchs, prayers, prophets, predictions, apostles, precepts, confessors, testimony, holy virgins, innocence, and the deeds of true men. Today I put on the power of heaven, the light of the sun, the radiance of the moon, the splendor of fire, the fierceness of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the firmness of the earth, and the hardness of rock. Today I put on God's strength to steer me, God's power to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye for my vision, God's ear for my hearing, God's word for my speech, God's hand to protect me, God's pathway before me, God's shield for my shelter, God's angels to guard me from ambush of devils, from vice allurements, from traps of the flesh, from all who wish ill, whether distant or close, alone or in hosts. I summon these powers today to take my part against every implacable power that attacks my body and soul. The chance of false prophets, dark laws of the pagans, false heretics laws, entrapments of idols, enchantments of women or smiths or druids, and all knowledge that poisons men's bodies or soul. So Christ guard me today from poison, from burning, from drowning, from hurt, that I may have my reward. Christ beside me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right hand, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I rise, Christ in the hearts of all who think of me, Christ in the mouths of all who speak to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. And so today I put on a terrible strength, invoking the Trinity, confessing the three with one as I face my maker, amen. There's something about the eloquence of history in words. I'm sorry. I'm a, a history buff. I love stuff like that. You go through that prayer, and it's interesting. You know, it talks about relationship as well. And we all desire harmonious, peaceful relationships. And yet, to be honest, many homes, many school, many workplaces, and even the church is marked by conflict. And so our series with dealing with uh, relational rehab 
uh, in our lives is based on the New Testament book of James. And this is a series about the kind of communications that makes all relationships healthy. It doesn't matter where you find yourself, it makes all of our relationships healthy. And the churches that James wrote to were experiencing conflict specifically. That's why he's writing these. He's not addressing hypothetical situations that are taking the outplace, you know, in the future. He's actually dealing with real situations that arise, and so he is correcting them. And so the thesis of the book of James, if you're to take a step back, is to live the faith. Put your faith into action. And the half-brother of Jesus is speaking to the scattered Jewish Christians across the nation because they took off when persecution started. And James tells them, he says, look, what you have to do is more than just talk your talk. You got you to live your life. You got to put your faith into action in the kingdom of God, even under persecution. In other words, what you do with your faith actually matters here and now and in eternity more than just what you speak about it. So put your faith into action. And I love the book of James. It's so full of practical advice, but not everybody agrees with me. Martin Luther, for instance, disliked the letter of James. He actually said James is a, is a, the St. James epistle is really an epistle of straw. He really didn't care for it that much. But I love the fact that James writes about the dangers of the tongue and he warns about playing favorites in the church. And he tells us uh, that our faith without action is dead. And that's a part of what really upset Martin Luther, just throwing it out there. But over and over again, James addresses the issues that have potential to damage the church at large, but also all of our relationships in general. In the first week, we talked about the three keys of getting along with others. Do you remember what they were? Of course you do. It's listen more, right? Talk less and and stay calm. Not calm down. Stay calm. if If you stay calm, you don't have to calm down. Just throwing that out there, right? Listen more, talk less, stay calm. Now, if we could just do that, we would all be able to improve all of our relationships about a thousand percent. Last week, we talked about trying to control our tongues. We recognize that the tongue is a poison and a fire. We, we, you know, we can tame it and control our words only if we let the Holy Spirit have control of us, of our heart, of our thoughts, and of our conversations. I even gave you homework for, uh, you know, if you can go 24 hours without saying an unkind word to about or to anybody, how many, how'd you guys do? How many failed? Do you know I failed after the first gathering? Oh, you guys are liars. Because I failed like five minutes right after the first gathering. I went back to the sound desk and we're talking and we had you know, a bunch of friends and we're all sitting there. And of course I got sarcastic right off the top. And then I got called out by the person I got sarcastic with. And so I just, I'm thankful for two gatherings, two communions. Yeah, I feel, I feel good after that. <laughs> It's tough, but are you more mindful now of the words that come out of your mouth? Like, does the other person really need to hear what you're saying about that other person, right? Are we really aware of what's coming out of our mouth? The text I was getting in the messages was funny, too, because I was like, do, you know, while driving, does that count? Yes, it does, because trust me, because out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so last week we began chapter 3 of James by, uh, you know, James addressing wannabe teachers. And he tells these wannabe teachers, look, if you're going to be a teacher, you need to be careful because there's a stricter judgment. One of the verses I absolutely dislike in Scripture. And then he broadens his counsel to deal with the problem that we all wrestle with, and that is the destruction of a tongue, right? 
And in our text today, James is focusing, at least in part, on those who would become teachers. That's part of what he's focusing on. And one of the main reasons is that he's basically saying to some people, look at you shouldn't teach. It's because the only reason that they're teaching is for the sake of their own egos. That's the only reason. They don't do it for the edification of others. In other words, these wannabe teachers, they teach to show people just how smart and wise they really are. And so the whole matter of relationships that James is trying to teach comes down to one word. And it's something that we don't think about in our relationships with each other. It's the word is wisdom. That's what he's talking about. And, and, you know, we see the lack of wisdom and played out all the time in our society. Two words, social media. Okay. William Barclay, he, he wrote this. He goes, one of the most difficult things in the world is to argue without passion and to meet arguments without wounding. To be utterly convinced of one's own beliefs without at the same time being bitter to those of others is no easy thing. And yet, it is a first necessity for the Christian teacher and scholar. Now, that's a, that's a quote that you have to go back. You have to think on it and hear what he's saying to us. But have you ever noticed that many times we might be trying to convince someone of our particular theological view or our political view of our preference for our favorite sports team or our food or music choice? But in all of that, what we're doing is we are trying to teach them, right? We're trying to school them. We're trying to learn them. We are attempting to be these wannabes. There used to be a time where we would have these discussions actually face-to-face. -face. And if you wanted a broader audience and you felt you weren't being heard, what people used to do was actually write letters to the editor. Mm, that sounds like a novel idea. I was cleaning out my parents' stuff, and I found, of course, some letters to the editor that my dad wrote. I never, I never believed it. It was actually it was priceless. But today we have this, this evil thing called social media. And it's on social media that people try to convince others via Facebook and Instagram. And yes, even Twitter. Actually, Twitter is making a rise. And because sharing a link or copying and pasting is much easier than actually sitting down and having a face-to-face -face conversation, more people attempt to persuade others of their views on these mediums, do they not? They even attempt to come across as a scholar, because Google's so handy that way. And unfortunately, because it's that easy, we often don't think about what we're saying or what we're conveying in this static medium in which people read their own feelings into. As a matter of fact, when we get out in our social media and we start posting stuff, it's actually very passive-aggressive passive way of getting our opinion across. Can I say something honestly from the bottom of my heart that may be offensive to everybody sitting here? Not, not everybody will believe what you believe no matter how passionate you are about it. And if your goal is to make sure everybody believes what you believe, you are a very annoying person to be around. Annoying. Like, hey, listen, I, I believe 
that not everybody will believe everything I believe. And I pastor a church. You know, if you had to believe what I believe, that means you would have to be a Jets fan. Yeah, all right. That, that you would have to like a really thick steak done medium rare. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the perfect food, by the way. But um, that you would have to cross your theological T's and dot your doctrinal I's just like I do. Do I get an amen? Uh, no, I don't. Now, oh, now we have differences, right? Uh, I even have a hard time believing everything I believe. But if my goal in life was to persuade you to believe as I did, and if we got honest in this in all of our relationships, it would probably alienate you, and it's possible that it would actually stand in my way of sharing the reality and the important thing that I am called to do and share with you, and that is the love and grace of Jesus. Now do I get an amen? When it comes to spiritual issues, I know what I believe, but... If my only goal is to make you believe the same way, hear me very carefully, it probably won't happen. There isn't a person here in this room at Soul Sanctuary or maybe even the world who is in 100% agreement with me on everything. And that's fine, especially my wife. And I still love her. And I've been married to her for over 30 years. You're a lucky lady. (laughs) Is there a room available for me? (laughs) Yeah, there's an extra bed. Awesome. She'll need it. Um, (laughs) It's a joke, and I just failed the 24-hour challenge all over again. I have to realize, even as a pastor, I look at the scriptures, I see the apostle Paul didn't convince everybody to believe the same way he did. Right? He didn't convince people. For, mat- for that matter, when we look and study the life of Jesus, Jesus didn't convince people and say to everybody to believe what he did. I can preach into your head, but when it comes right down to it, it's only the Holy Spirit who will preach to your heart. We live in a society that speaks loudly about tolerance, but has very little tolerance for those who don't agree with society. And sometimes you may want to say the world's full of idiots and you are their king, right? We want to say that. But is it really helpful in our relationships with people, especially online? And the problem is once you allow it to become personal, soon as we start getting personal, soon as we start getting into name calling, it all starts going downhill from there. Eventually we digress into name call. We demonize the person that doesn't agree with us and that we argue with. And it doesn't just happen online, it happens in person. And if you're not careful, uh, online arguments, maybe you heard this, they tend to follow Godwin's law. Do you know what Godwin's law is? It states that an argument online grows longer, the more it grows, the longer it gets heated, it becomes increasingly likely that somebody's going to bring up Adolf Hitler and Nazis. It's actually true. (laughs) Eventually you're a Nazi in some way or shape or form. That's just the way it is. And so the, the, you know, the alt-rights are Nazis and the alt-lefts are Nazis. I just don't get it, but anyway. Earlier, James wanted us to understand that our tongues wields 
uh, supernatural power. If we don't keep our tongue tamed, if we don't keep it bridled and under control, it's going to lead our lives into a firestorm. Therefore, we need the Holy Spirit now to help us lead us into wisdom. Wisdom from above that helps us bring our speech, our tongue, under control. And so our text especially applies to those of us who teach God's word, but it also applies to every believer. So if you identify as a believer here this morning, James is showing us that God's wisdom will lead into peaceful relationships. That we need to learn to be grace givers in our relationships because not everybody is going to hold on to the same values that you hold on to. And one of the hardest things for us to do, especially when we've been hurt or offended repeatedly, is for us to show grace and mercy to other people. But when we do show grace and mercy, it actually begins to change everything and everyone around us. And so James asks in chapter 3, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility, right? That comes from wisdom. Now, James goes on, he tells us that there are two different wisdoms trying to influence and control our lives. One originates from heaven above. The other one is earthly, unspiritual wisdom with its roots from below. And so we're here to figure out how to have great relationships by applying the truth of Bible, the Bible to our lives. And we've all been through relationship struggles. We've all had hiccups in our relationships. For some of us, we've seen them fall apart. And one big reason our relationships with other people fall apart is because of the decisions that we make based on feelings rather than facts. Great relationships aren't based on feeling love for someone or on feeling loved by someone. Great relationships, people, and this is the key to this whole text, is based on wisdom. They're based on thinking that is grounded in truth. And James is giving us real wisdom here in this passage. So what's wisdom anyway, right? Uh, one author puts it as the ability to take the facts and relate them to your life and put them into action. Somebody else described it like this. Describe the individual who possessed moral insight and skill in deciding practical issues of conduct. I thought, okay, that's pretty deep. Another person put it really simple. Wisdom is what is true and right combined with good judgment. I like that one. So James is immersed in the Old Testament. As you study the book, you see where James draws upon what he's saying to the church. He bases a lot of his teachings uh, from something that they would all be familiar with. Jewish Christians, what are they familiar with? What we would call the Old Testament, the Torah. They would be familiar with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs paints a clear picture of the two types of wisdom. The Hebrew word for wisdom, when, when it's translated, has this nuance in it of skill. So it's not just here, but it's skill. It comes out. So Proverbs opens up telling us that wisdom is the key to a successful life. We need to make sure that we pursue it with our whole heart. Now, according to James, worldly wisdom is, uh, is from below. He describes it as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Worldly wisdom denies the truth, and in a selfish and boastful way, it produces the fruit of disorder and chaos and every evil practice. 
So worldly wisdom, according to James, tends to be just mere words that have a catastrophic effect. However, God's wisdom is from above. Heavenly wisdom, as James calls it, uses certain words, but it manifests itself in godly action. The wisdom from above consists of God's God-given wisdom and understanding that produces a fruit of purity, a peaceable spirit, which is gentle, accommodating, and it's not impartial, and it's not hypocritical. Here are just a few verses from Proverbs to give us some background. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. The prudent, the wise, keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool's heart blurts out folly. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. I love that. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Facebook. Those who guard their mouths and tongues keep themselves from calamity. Do you see someone who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than for them. (laughs) So one type of wisdom breeds people who are called wise. The other one breeds people who are called fools. One type of wisdom produces a life filled with eternal blessing. The other type of wisdom breeds a life filled with everlasting curses. One type of wisdom will set you free. The other will put you in bondage. One type of wisdom will give your life ultimate satisfaction. The other will bring discontentment and lifelessness. Do you see what James is working here with? Do you see what the book of Proverbs is telling us? James highlights the relationships between our words and our works. The wannabe teachers that he is addressing seem to be convinced that wisdom was just a matter of words alone. Just put the words out there. James doesn't deny that wisdom is is spoken in words, but he wants us to understand that wisdom is demonstrated in how we live out our life. That's why it's so important what wisdom we use in our relationships with one another. They go hand in hand. James already told us that the mouth is, incre- is capable of incredible duplicity. It, it is capable of speaking words of blessing and cursing. And we cannot know true wisdom by words alone, right? The person who is truly wise is the one who lives skillfully. And this is what Proverbs is all about. So that we know who we should listen to. And the first thing James tells us about wisdom is what type of heart it has. Last week we asked, how can we tame the tongue? And the answer is, we needed to go and start with our hearts. Remember, Ezekiel 18.31 tells us to get a new heart, tells us to get a new spirit. When, when we let God have his way inside of us, different things will come out of us. And it all starts with our heart. You want to work on your relationships? Start with yourself. Start with your heart. And what he's saying is that we should strive, what we should strive for is to have wisdom from above. And wisdom from above is with a heart that is pure, he says. Pure means uncontaminated with the philosophy of the world, rooted in the teaching of the scriptures. This heart, this pure heart, is centered on the ways of God. The the heart, this pure heart, is centered on the mindset of Jesus. And we should have a heart that has experienced his cleansing power and the love and the mercy of God. Therefore, his heart is as white as snow. This heart should be in spiritually in tune with the Spirit of God. And it's a condition of health. That's what it is. How's your heart? Proverbs 1, 
1 to 7 tells us that the path to wisdom starts with the fear of God. And, and this healthy fear compels us to surrender our life to the Lord. When we surrender, when we give up, and when we ask for forgiveness, he then begins to wash us. He washes our hearts, and our hearts become pure like that first snowfall. Hmm. The reality, though, is wisdom only starts in a relationship with Jesus. In other words, we have to have a heart that is spiritually connected to the heart of God. The link in wisdom is to have that spiritual connection. How's your heart? Are you connected with God? If there's no link, I'll be honest, there's no wisdom. No link, no spiritual insight to make the right decisions or to use knowledge rightly and correctly. Watch this clip. Now be careful, R2. <laughs> he made a fair move. Screaming about it can't help you. I have. It's not wise to upset a Wookiee. But sir, nobody worries about upsetting a droid. It's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Wookiees are known to do that. I see your point, sir. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. Remember, a Jedi can feel the Force flowing through him. You mean he controls your actions? Partially. But it also obeys your commands. Hokey <laughs> religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. You don't believe in the Force, do you? Kid, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful Force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny. It's all a lot of simple tricks and nonsense. I suggest you try it again, Luke. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. <laughs> With the blast shield down, I can't even see. How am I supposed to fight? Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. <laughs> Stretch out with your feelings. You see? You can do it. I call it luck. In my experience, there's no such thing as luck. Look, good against remotes is one thing. Good against the living, it's something else. Looks like we're coming up on Alderaan. You know, I did feel something. I could almost see the remote. That's good. You've taken your first step into a larger world. The reason I use this clip because I actually think that the scene illustrates that your heart condition will affect your belief system. Luke believes in the Force, and he knows the stronger he grows in the Force, the more ability that he has to defeat the dark side. Han? Uh, only believes in himself. But the movie series, if you watch the series, proves that Han is no match to the dark side either and their power. 
And so the lesson applied spiritually is, is trust and, and give your heart to the Lord and gain wisdom from above, which will shape your belief system and actually affect your lifestyle. When our hearts are in the right place, it will affect our belief system, which in turn affects our lifestyle and the ability for God to use us supernaturally to defeat the dark side. James lists five marks of worldly wisdom. He lists five marks of the dark side. He says that worldly wisdom is rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He mentions those two negative traits twice. They, they both deal with the hidden, the hidden motives of our heart. He says that the worldly wisdom is arrogant. The Greek actually means stop being arrogant. And again, I would translate this application as I'm right and those who disagree me with, with me are either stupid or sinning. That's the kind of connotation that's there. Even Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says knowledge, to know something, to be you know, smart guys, it's, it's puffed up. And we should all know what we believe and we should all be able to support it some way from scripture. But we should always guard against pride that so easily creeps in, especially in our relationships with one another. If we start parading our knowledge or using it to put others in their place, we're not displaying godly wisdom. James also states that worldly wisdom lies against the truth. Coupled with the previous traits, they seem to go hand in hand. If a man who is motivated by jealousy and personal ambition gets up and arrogantly berates others and proclaims on how much he knows, and we all know people like that, not only are his actions giving lie to the truth that he professes to be teaching, chances are he's going to find himself and you'll catch him in a lie to continue to prove his points that he so dogmatically holds on to. James doesn't mince words when it comes to this. The source of worldly wisdom is not God, but rather, at best, the natural man. Ultimately, it's Satan himself. The terms move, as James describes them, from least to worst. Earthly suggests uh, you know, a, a perspective that fails to consider God's realm and will. So it's just sort of like, you're there, unspiritual or natural, one translation uses, always used negatively in the New Testament, and it's opposed to something being spiritual to being godlike. And demonic, of course, when he uses that word, points to the ultimate source that is always opposed to God. Two types of wisdom, worldly and heavenly. And finally, worldly results in disorder, in, in every evil thing. In 1 Corinthians, Paul points out to the church and there were problems when the church got together in their gathering. And he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So the church there was going through some serious confusion. That word confusion is the same Greek word that's translated here, disorder. And the same disorder is bound to break out in our relationships with one another, whether it's at work, at home, at school, where people are pursuing, think about it, their own selfish concerns and partisan causes rather than the good of everybody as a whole. How are your relationships with people? What are the relationships that you have that are chaotic, that are in disorder? And then James quickly tra um, uh, shifts and he makes a contrast to uh, the wisdom that he says is from above. Heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom. He goes on, he begins to list seven qualities of what this wisdom is all about. He underscores the, prim uh, uh, the primacy of purity when he writes first pure 
Because without purity, it's not wisdom from above. The Greek word means to be unmixed, to be untainted by any impurity. So in the context that James is talking about here in our relationships, it especially has the sense of being free from any jealousy or selfish ambition. Are you jealous of somebody? Or are you, you know, is there stuff going on within you? Well, then maybe you need to do a heart check. In other words, it's focusing on our motives. If we seek wisdom so that we use it for our advantage and power, that's not godly wisdom. That's pure, that's earthly wisdom. Our motive for seeking or using wisdom has to be to glorify God, to build up other people, edify other people. That is God giving, that is God's glory. Those who we are speaking to, that's when we learn to be a grace giver. Our relationships, it's easy to want to win the argument, is it not? But you can destroy the person that you're arguing with. Keep in mind, people, how difficult is it for you to change your mind on an issue? It takes time. So when we're in a relationship with somebody and we are on opposite ends of a, of, of a topic... Be gracious and grant that to the other person. We tend to tune out and we try to win over. And for some of us, we go at all costs to win over. And usually the cost is that relationship. Wisdom is peaceable. Shout out from the Mennonites. (laughs) You know, seeking peace in relationships is a major theme in the Bible. You know, just after his counsel to wives and husbands in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, he quotes Psalms 34 that we got, you know, we got to turn away from evil. We have to do good. We have to seek peace. And he adds to it, pursue it. Not only look for it, but actually pursue it. If you realize that all those words imply relationship, we are to go as individuals after peace. This is echoed in Ephesians 4.3. It says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Seek peace, pursue it with diligence. People who are always stirring up controversy over petty issues, you're not acting with godly wisdom. Those are hard words, but I have to say it. Petty issues. Godly wisdom is gentle, folks. This is a different Greek word than one translated gentleness earlier in chapter 3. Again, William Barclay, he said, of all the Greek words in the New Testament, this is the most untranslatable. And he goes on to say that the man with this quality, this gentle, knows how to forgive when strict justice gives him a perfect right to condemn. He knows how to make allowances when not to stand on his rights and how to temper justice with mercy. And so it's interesting that that word gentle indicates a willingness to yield to others, to, to giving in, to corresponding. Uh, uh, um, it's, it's learning to be a grace giver. It's really the quality that Jesus possessed. I love that the next descriptor of godly wisdom is to be considerate and submissive. The word there is translated, it really means easily persuaded. It doesn't mean being gullible or credulous, but rather willing to defer to others. 
as long as a core doctrine or moral principle is not at stake. In other words, it's quick to hear or, or you know, listen more, and it knows when to yield. It knows when to give grace. It knows when to shut its mouth. It knows when to, I'm not going to change this person. It's, it's, it knows what it's all about just simply for the sake of peace. And the person is willing to listen to others and other people's views and <clears throat> is even willing to change if their view is wrong. Ouch, that's tough. And we also read that godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. And the qualities that James is writing about echoes the beatitudes of Jesus, the gentleness, the the purity, the peace. It's also true of mercy. Jesus often underscored the importance of mercy. You know, he said, remember, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He also said, be merciful. A command, just as your father is merciful. And so being merciful to one another means not only having compassion for the, maybe the person who is suffering from anything that they did, but also showing compassion to the one who's suffering because of their own fault. God's merciful to us in spite of the fact that our problems usually stem from our own sin and rebellion, do they not? Don't touch the light socket, but God, I want to. And yet, while we are still sinners, he sent Christ to die for our sins. And we are to extend that mercy that we have received to others. Others who, in your relationship circles, probably, I'm going to say primarily at work, who are undeserving. Learn to be a grace giver. James adds good fruits. I like that. Always go back to food. He's looking back to when he, he, he talked in chapter 2 that our faith has to show itself in practical good deeds. If we see someone in need and do nothing, he basically says, what good is that? In other words, godly wisdom is not theoretical, but it's actually practical. It rolls up the sleeves. It takes actions. There is fruit to the godly wisdom that we have in our relationships. It also says that wisdom is impartial. <clears throat> And the word here, excuse me, that word is actually used only here in the New Testament, specifically by James. Um, And it may mean impartial in the sense of not taking sides based on a party spirit or personal loyalties, because we tend to do that. We take a side of somebody, right? Because they're either good friends of ours or they're family members or it's the right party or it's the right theological or political bent. And it, it means, no, we need to be more impartial, Um, But it also has this connotation of standing meaning undivided in the sense of unwavering loyalty to God. Being partial in our decision mates, but loyal to God. And James hits this in chapter 4 where he makes the point that you cannot be a friend of the world and of God at the same time. Godly wisdom doesn't play politics with truth, shading it according to personal advantage. Rather, it holds unswervingly to the truth in love. What's the truth? It's time to start reading our scripture. Godly wisdom is also sincere. There's no hypocrisy in it. 
What you see is not a mask or a cover-up. That word was used originally of the Greek actors who, who played a part on stage. You know, it's not like who they are in person, right? The person characterized by wisdom from heaven will be stable, will be trustworthy, will be transparent, will be the kind of person consistently displaying the virtues of wisdom on who they can rely for in advice and counsel. Who are the godly people that you can go to who you see that manifested? And if we all lived by these seven qualities of godly wisdom, our personal uh, conflicts would be greatly minimized and harmonious relationships would actually blossom and grow. James closes the section by saying, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And his point is simple. You reap what you sow. If a farmer plants corn, he's going to reap corn. He's not going to reap beans. If you sow peace, you'll reap peace. If you sow selfishness and strife, you're going to reap conflict. Is there conflict in your lives with people? But also implicit in the verse here is the fact that a harvest is not accidental. It's not unexpected. No farmer sits around doing nothing all year then goes out to the field, whoa, look at my harvest. They don't do that. They don't talk like that either because I know Will and Bruce will kill me, but... You know, if there's a harvest in a farmer's field, it's in part because he has worked hard to actually cultivate that harvest. If you, if, if you see a church or a home where there's peace, it's because the members of that church, the members of that home, the workers in that place have worked to cultivate peace in those relationships. They have listened to one another. They have respected one another. They've, been, they've judged their own selfishness and pride. They sought to live in accordance with godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. We sow what we reap in our relationships. Are your relationships constantly changing? Are they catastrophic? Look inside. What wisdom are you working on? And so relational rehab are you having relationship issues with people? Let me give you some facts. May I suggest to change your relationships that you let God change your thinking. Relationships will fall apart when I focus on only what I can get from them. You need to change your thinking. When I live by my survival instinct alone, I look to my and I look to my relationships to manipulate what I can get out of them. As, you know, that's basically a fear base. And as long as you're ruled by fear, is what you're going to try to do is manipulate and control people. Now, some of you are going to go, oh, gosh, that's, that's me. Yeah, well, it's a heart issue, right? There is an alternative way to relate to people. The second one is relationships are healthy when I learn wisdom from God about them. I stumbled on this story. The irony is hilarious, but on November 10th, 1951, Hugh, Sir Hugh Beaver, yes, that's his real name, the managing director of Guinness Brewers, went hunting in Wexford, Ireland, and after missing a shot at what was called a golden plover, I, I had no clue, he shot at a golden plover. You're going, what's a golden plover? I'll get to it. Just let me get my story here. He became involved in an argument, this is great, guys with guns arguing, all right, with one of his friends over which was the fastest game bird in Europe. The golden plover, all right, you tracking with me now, right? Or the red grouse. 
which was the fastest game bird in Europe. So that uh, evening, they went back to Castle Bridge House, which is a pub, and they argued. And he realized that it was impossible for him to confirm whether or not the golden plover was Europe's fastest game bird. And in case you didn't know, settling arguments peacefully in English pubs has often been a very difficult task. But Beaver knew that, (laughs) Beaver, that's hilarious. He knew that there had to be numerous other questions debated in nightly pubs throughout Ireland and abroad, but there was no book in the world in which to settle the arguments about the records. And so he realized then that a book supplying the answers to these sorts of questions could be actually quite successful and benefit him financially. And so Beaver's idea became a reality when another Guinness employee by the name of Christopher Chataway recommended his university buddies, a couple of twins by the name of Norris and Ross McWhorter. Uh, they were running a fact-finding agency in London at the time. And these twin brothers are now commissioned to compile all these stats, which eventually became the Guinness Book of Records in 1954. And it has been a bestseller ever since. And by 1987, it sold more copies than any other copyrighted book in publishing history. All that said, we still have a far better bestseller to help us live harmoniously. The wisdom of the scriptures, the wisdom of the Bible. But because of selfishness, because of pride, because of jealousy, many Christians have used the Bible itself, we see it now, to attack others, to justify themselves over others, to put down others. James wants us to apply godly wisdom to our personal lives and our relationships. The Bible, the scriptures, people, please download the Lent devotional off our page. God's Bible is the Bible is God's revelation of his will and his wisdom for our lives. We need to read it. We need to soak on it. So what's its purpose then, Jerry? What does the Bible do for us? Well, look at 2 Timothy. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for what? For teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, if you're a believer, that's you, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible teaches us how to have life through the work of Jesus. The Bible teaches us how to live life through the wisdom of Jesus. We need to get back to the scriptures. We need God's word. We need God's wisdom to have a healthier relationships around us. Do you want healthy relationships? Start reading the scriptures. Start in the book of Proverbs. And a lot of our relationships go south because we ignore what the divine architect of those relationships have revealed about his will for us. And it's right in front of us. fact number three, relationships are healthy when you invest yourself in them. And those who are peacemakers, notice, will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Notice the phrase, we plant seeds. You get out of relationships what you invest. Oh, I have no friends. Well, be one. It starts with you all over again. You have to cultivate healthy relationships with people. You know, what do you invest in others? Wisdom that loves peace. Willingness to yield to others. Giving mercy and doing good deeds. Being sincere and un.
hypocritical. Learning to be a grace giver. I'll say this, grace givers will always have healthier relationships than any manipulator ever will. And grace doesn't make sense, people. It's not right. It's not fair. We deserve to be vindicated, right? We deserve to be first, right? See, that's what our human wisdom tells us, but God's wisdom gives us a different way to live, becoming this grace giver and investing our lives into the lives of others. Jesus went first, by the way. Jesus entered history to save the stubborn, to save lost people. He came for sinners. He invested his life into them. He died for them. He rose again for them. And them is all of us. Wisdom is not just mere head knowledge. Real wisdom, real understanding will show in our lives. It shows by our actions. We need to discern today which wisdom has taken root in our lives. And the truth is we are adhering to either one or the other. Is there peace in your home? Are you, you at peace at work or at school? Are you at peace with those in your relationship circle? It's heart check time, isn't it? And if not, I think we are all under the obligation to check out what kind of seed we're sowing. If we're sowing with worldly wisdom, look, people, you're going to reap disorder and every evil thing. If you sow and begin to sow God's wisdom, you'll reap peace. It's never too late to change what you're planting. And I think we need to determine today if we're going to allow wisdom from above to direct our life or if we're going to let wisdom from below direct our life. If we, one, actually just bring satisfaction and blessing and a life in order, uh, and a life in order. The other, it actually brings disarray to our life and curses. But the choice is really, the crazy thing, the choice is up to me. The, the choice is up to you. We, we make our choice. So which one will have your life? That's why I just love having communion at the end of these gatherings. Because we have to respond. And if I'm going to learn to be a grace giver, who is the best teacher but the one who reminds me when we come together that I need grace? And thank God for the grace that he's given us. Pastor Jordan McClellan is going to lead us. And as he comes, we're going to prepare our hearts. If you need to talk further about anything that's said in today's life lesson and you want to expound on it, you want to talk about Jesus, you want to talk about faith or whatever, don't hesitate to text soul to the number on the screen and we'll contact you. We'll contact you this week and we'll journey with you in your life and in your faith. Just reach out. Can't force you, but we're here for you. Communion, as Pastor Jerry just mentioned, is a great thing because it brings us to Jesus and uh, kind of allows us to respond to whatever it is that he's speaking to us. And so thank you so much for that word this morning. At Soul Sanctuary, we practice an open communion table, meaning if you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to celebrate communion with us today. Uh, perhaps if this is brand new to you or perhaps it's your first time um, even at church, we just invite you really just to sit back, relax, and really just take it in from your seat this morning. But as we look at the communion table, 
we always look towards the past and we look towards the sacrifice of what Jesus did for us, but we also examine the present. And in light with our the word we heard this morning, and in light of the, the two types of wisdom, godly and worldly, and what are we seeking after? We allow God to, to examine our hearts and search them and speak to us. But with communion, we also look to the future because we know our hope is bright and we know we've received grace. And in the same way we've received grace, how could we also give grace to others? And so this morning, communion is a time where we're going to focus in on Jesus and really just allow him to really shine a spotlight on our hearts, if you will. And so this morning, as we go to the communion table, my, my encouragement is that you allow God to speak to you and examine you in regards to your relationships with him and with each other. So I'm going to have everyone stand this morning. In the front, in the corners of the room are communion uh, tables. On the table are cups of juice and bread. And I'm just going to ask you, as the band uh, starts to lead us in worship, if you're in the first five rows or so, uh, use the tables at the front. If you're in the back rows, use the tables at the back. But uh, I'm going to invite you just to the communion table, grab a cup, grab a piece of bread, and just come back to your seat. And, uh, and, and really just allow God just to speak to you this morning. And when everyone's back together, we will partake together. And so as the band leads us, please make your way to the communion table today. Jesus sat down with his disciples. He took the bread. And he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of his body broken for us. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you in remembrance of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's, let's drink the cup today. Thank you, God. Please stand. Just in a moment of just reflection and continued examination, let's worship God. Please respond to him in your own way this morning as we worship together. Father, we just thank you today, and we just um, thank you for this time. Thank you for speaking to us. And uh, Lord, may we pursue wisdom as you've called us to, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to be seated just for one more moment. Um, joining me on the stage right now are Pastor Shauna and Murray, and they're going to be sharing with us before we go this morning just some news of things that are happening, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to them and just allow you guys to share, share your news with us today. Well, today I stand before you to announce that Marie and I will be trans... Sorry. That we will be transitioning out of our ministry here at Soul Sanctuary. For the past, for the past five years, Marie and I have had the privilege of calling Manitoba and Soul Sanctuary home. About a year ago, God began stirring something in our hearts and... We knew that a change was coming, but we weren't sure what that change was going to be looking like. We assumed that the change that would be happening was that we would be selling our house, as some of you uh, knew we were getting ready to do. Um, but we didn't actually see how big the changes actually were going to be. About a year ago, a dear friend and mentor 
approached us about whether we would consider working in a girl's orphanage overseas. And looking at that opportunity through prayer and through wise counsel, we realized that that opportunity that was being presented to us was not only one that was stirring our hearts, but will use the giftings and abilities that God has placed on us individually and as a couple. So in the past year, we've taken up the application process to become global workers. And as of Tuesday of this week, we officially received our stamp of approval. So what does transitioning look like? We will be working with Pastor Jerry and the steering committee as they now begin to search for a replacement for myself. Until that happens, I will continue my duties here uh, as the children's pastor, while also taking up other necessary tasks that, for our transition into the global field, which includes fundraising and cross-cultural training. With the support of Pastor Jerry and the steering committee, we will be hosting events that will give more information for those who are interested in partnering with us as we look at making a new culture home. Due to the sensitive nature of our placement, there are things that we are not at liberty to share in a public setting, such as a Sunday morning gathering. However, we would love the opportunity to meet with those who would love to hear more about the opportunity that's been presented and to see how this crazy God story has unfolded. We consider it a privilege to have walked alongside of this community over the last five years. Know that as we prepare ourselves to go, we will be soul sanctuaries, hands and feet extended to the nations. And we value your prayer and support in the months to come. Thank you for thank you for sharing with us, Pastor Sean and Murray. Just know that we love you guys. We support you guys. It's one of those things that's a bittersweet thing because we're excited about what God has planned for you, but also we, we highly value the work and amazing ministry you've done among us and our community. And so at an appropriate time, we will pray for them and we will send them off. But just so you know, we're, we're supporting you, we're praying with you, and uh, we're walking with you as God leads you on this journey. If you'd like to speak with Pastor Shauna or Murray, they will be at the Welcome Center following the gathering. Can I ask you to stand again, please? <laughs> This morning's blessing is going to be a little different. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. If you'd like to receive a blessing, please do likewise. This morning, allow me to pray the prayer of St. Patrick. Uh, St. Patrick's breastplate over us. A well-known prayer of protection um, and help that he wrote as he ministered in Ireland. And here it is. May the strength of God pilot us. The power of God uphold us. May the wisdom of God instruct us. May the hand of God protect us, and may the word of God direct us. Christ with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us. Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ when we lie down, Christ when we sit, Christ when we stand. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of us, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of us, Christ in every eye that sees us, and Christ in every ear that hears us. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, prayer meeting this Wednesday. Uh, make sure to join us at 733. And uh, yeah, if you could help us stack the back few rows of chairs and have them moved over to the alcove, we'd appreciate that. Have a great Sunday. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs>